0: And Welcome to you. I'm Alice Hawkins, and I'm really excited to be bringing you the very first episode of my new podcast called The Bone Stories, where I'm going to take you on a journey into the past. It's a place where the sights and the smells are very different than today, and a time when beliefs and morals could often challenge modern thought. However, the people of the past were not so different from ourselves. One thing we all have in common is that our life history leaves its mark on our bones. The Bone Stories will bring together historical research and the science behind archaeology and forensic anthropology to reveal our real human history. This is episode one the terrors of the time, London, 1665. Imagine, if you will, a London very different from the one that exists today. In 1665, the population of the city had swollen dramatically, mainly due to people coming from the countryside for work. In fact, the population had trebled since the turn of the century. London at this time consisted of about 500 acres surrounded by a city wall. There were six gates in and out of the city. To the south lay London Bridge and the River Thames. So if we step back into this time today, the main thing we would encounter would be the smell. Rotten food, Urine and faeces, both human and animal, would all have been mulched together to create nothing short of foulness. The poorest parts of the city where we're walking, hygiene was impossible to maintain. Tenements were close together and overcrowded and there was no sanitation and open drains flowed through tiny winding streets. The street cobbles that we're walking on were slippery with house slops, dung and rubbish, and during the warmer weather would have been buzzing with flies and created an even less palatable stench. You can hold a nosegay of perfumed herbs to your nose, but the stench is so foul it seems to cling to you. As you walk through the streets, you constantly are moving out of the way of wayward animals, standing in filth, sometimes up to your ankles, and dodging out of the way of very busy people, pushing and shoving. London at this time was well known for people walking fast and being very busy. There's also the noise, the hustle and bustle merchants shouting, animals squealing and barking, bells ringing. It must have been quite exhausting getting from place to place. Even on a summer day, the centre of the parishes would have remained quite dull and dark, as the closely knit buildings often overhung across the street. If you had a bird's eye view across the city, you'd see many spires or towers of parish churches dotted against the skyline. Each small area of London was called a parish, and each parish, along with a parish church, had a governor responsible for the day-to-day running and conduct of the area. These overcrowded medieval buildings became a breeding ground for disease. Each week a bill of mortality was pinned up and sold for one penny. This detailed each death in the parish and its cause. One of London's poorest parishes was called St Giles in the Field. In the excruciatingly hot summer of 1665, St Giles gained one more visitor to its parish, the plague. This unwanted visitor had been here before, in fact, several times. In what became known as the Black Death that ravaged Europe in 1347, killing thought to be 30 million people. It changed the whole structure of society, and after that there was a series of waves of plague, approximately every 20 years or so, but not as catastrophic as the first. In 1665, the most recent event had been in about 1636, so within living memory of many people and most certainly their parents. So this bacteria that was responsible for the plague was caused initially by a tiny, unassuming flea. A creature so tiny, unusually unnoticeable, other than an irritating itch or bite on its host. The tiny flea had been part of the human household for hundreds of years, but this time was different. The bacteria, as in previous pestilent infestations, had taken passage from overseas, inside the body of a rat. So the flea would land on the rat to feed, retaining the bacteria inside its body. Rats were seen then, as today, as vermin, and probably more plentiful in certain areas. Now the flea needs to feed again and becomes wrapped in linen and cloth, unwashed clothing and lovely warm human bodies. It carries inside its stomach its bloody meal from the rat in a kind of blood clot in its stomach. Landing on the perfect human host, it regurgitates its previous bloody meal. In the process of feeding, it passes the bacteria from the rat into the bloodstream of the human. The person will feel a tiny nip and then slap or scratch the area and carry on with their day. It's at that point the bacteria heads straight into the human lymphatic system, nestles into the lymph nodes, and between two to seven days, symptoms of infection will begin to appear. Fever, severe headaches, vomiting blood, excruciating body pain and those forever feared tokens, the buboes. So history records three distinct types of plague. The septicemic, pneumonic and bubonic. Like its predecessor of the 14th century, this wave was bubonic. The winter of 1665 was very harsh, with even the River Thames freezing over. People at this time were very uh, God-fearing, but equally very superstitious. There was a feeling of impending doom due to the following year being a significant demonic number, 1666. Plus, there had been two comets sighted in both 1664 and 1665, which added to an overall feeling of uncertainty. As winter turned into spring, word had spread that there was evidence of plague on the continent in Amsterdam, Netherlands. It wasn't long before the weekly bills of mortality noted two deaths, to plague, in the parish of St Giles. Plague orders were quickly issued by the mayor to try and slow down the spread of the infection by closing public houses and inns, banning gatherings and killing cats and dogs. Due to lack of understanding on how the disease was transmitted, uh, one belief was that it travelled as am I asthma in the air and hung to the coats of cats and dogs. Historical research estimates that up to 40 to 200,000 cats and dogs were slaughtered for this reason at this time. It became a daily task for people to check the tokens of the disease uh, on their body, shown by large hard lumps in points of the lymph glands. The finding of the tokens was always too late and now the disease was well in the system, and now it was merely a waiting game. Some people did survive as they had during previous plague outbreaks, and had they built up something of immunity from previous strains, or did some people have natural immunity? At this stage, we don't know. This question will be answered as archaeological science develops, but for most, the emergence of the buboes was time to prepare for death. People still had hope that something could be done to combat or cure the disease. The buboes themselves were massively painful before they came, became necrotic. Some thought lancing would ease the pressure and pain, but this was excruciating without any anaesthetic. On lancing, a large globule of thick yellow pus would flow out of the bubo mixed with blood. In addition, most likely an inhuman smell of infection and decay further would enhance the delirium of the sufferer. The apothecaries offered many remedies. Opium and arsenic would have certainly offered temporary relief from the pain, and a more curious remedy was to put a dead animal upon the buboes to absorb the infection. It was also believed that the pox or syphilis was a cure, so prostitutes were in high demand. Another remedy was to lance and seal the open buboes with hot metal or a hot onion. I can only imagine that this procedure alone would have killed many who were already in an extremely weak state. Not only did many of the wealthy flee the city during this time, but also most of the clergy and doctors, leaving the poor literally to fend for themselves. The Archbishop did remain, as did the Lord Mayor of London, who took refuge in a kind of cage construction, maintaining isolation from people whilst maintaining a presence. However, those who ran the apothecaries often poor themselves and offering remedies and cures pretty much brought with them from life in the country and beliefs in herbal medicine. It's the Apothecary people who walk the streets in what has now become a synonymous symbol of the plague, the plague doctor. Wearing a long coat and beaked mask filled with aromatic herbs to keep the stench at bay. Dispensed old trusted remedies as well as checking bodies with their familiar white cane. Prodding and pushing a stationary body not get to get too close, checking for the transitions from body to corpse. Pungent aromatic smoke was also thought to hinder the spread. Many drawings of woodcuts of the time show researchers, bearers and gravediggers smoking a pipe. It's also recorded by Pepys and Defoe that children were encouraged to smoke for this very reason. Any person that showed signs of the plague were locked indoors with their immediate family and a red cross was painted on the door. Lord, have mercy on our souls. The parish would give basic food provisions but houses were guarded as often people tried and did escape the lockdown. There were also nurses, usually old, poor and desperate women, who had experience of raising children and tending the sick, perhaps too old to obtain conventional employment and desperate in need of money despite the risk. These women were called searchers They would enter an infected property, checking on the living and reporting any deaths so the bodies could then be removed by the bearers. These poor women often had a bad reputation, not only because of their class, but because they were elderly women and used, so often has been the case, as a scapegoat for misfortune. Even though they provided a vital and hazardous service for pittance, they were often accused of stealing anything the dead had left behind. There are historical accounts of searches being bribed to say that the death of an individual wasn't due to the plague to avoid the remaining family being locked up. Anything that was remotely valuable that the deceased left behind was confiscated by the parish and used to pay the searchers, their bearers and in the earlier months for a coffin and a funeral. Anything left over went into parish funds to help those who remained. In the early months of the plague, the dead would have been buried in extremely modest coffins and given a funeral on consecrated ground in a manner that was expected for the poor. As the disease progressed and the bodies mounted up and the heat of the summer grew, the summer of 1665 was extremely hot, the burial grounds became near to bursting point. The last burials were so close to the surface that the decaying bodies became part of the general underfoot sludge of the churchyard. However, as the summer became hotter, there was so much work for the grave diggers that plague pits became the norm, and the usual churchyards had to be abandoned due to overcrowding. The bells of the parish church, which used to ring occasionally prior to the pestilence, were just toiling constantly, so much so that they had to stop. The city of London had become deserted and silent. Under cover of night, in order not to distress those that remained alive, a cart would pull up outside a house, alerted by the searchers, and that infamous call of bring out your dead would echo through the empty streets and alleys. Body upon body, man upon woman, child upon child, the cart trudged along to the nearest plague pit in the show notes on the website i will uh, post a virtual map of all the plague pits in the london area for you to have a look at um so arrival at the pits the cart was upturned and the bodies were put into a general pit and the pit would remain open until it was full so there was layer upon layer of decomposing bodies, flies buzzing and birds feasting upon what would have been an unimaginable sight for anyone to witness. But when we look at the archaeological evidence, um, that shows that not all the burials were flung into a communal pit, Um, but we'll come to that in a minute. You know, I can only think that most people who carried out these tasks were operating on an autopilot mould in total shock and trauma, and the whole, whole human survival instinct would have totally kicked in. In August, a fumigation order dictated that great fires were to be lit across the city to smoke out the disease, and they lasted for several days until rain came. By September of 1665, the overbearing heat had disappeared and the days became cooler. The death rate lowered substantially and it appeared that the great pestilence was disappearing as quickly as it had appeared. In February of the following year, those who had retreated from the city started to slowly return and a new kind of normality resumed. Historical records of the time state that 68,000 deaths to this plague happened in London alone, but contemporary studies suggest that the number was closer to 100,000 because faiths such as Quakers and Jews didn't actually officially record deaths due to plague. I think it's also really interesting and important to understand that this terrible event occurred over 300 years ago. And the fact that I'm making this podcast today and you're listening to it means that at least one of our survivors, um, ancestors survived this time. They lived in a different time with different belief systems and a lack of understanding of things we take for granted today. However, essentially, as human beings, they're not so different from us. When I started studying human remains, there was something about looking at these remains from hundreds of years ago that just still never ceases to blow my mind. And it kind of verifies that our ancestors existed and are not just part of stories. So moving on to the archaeology of this story. In 2013, work began to extend part of the London Underground System around Liverpool Street Station. It was known as the Cross Rails Project and at the time was the largest construction programme in Europe. Archaeologists from the Museum of London, or MOLA, were called to ac- assess the archaeology. Many layers of London's past were uncovered, but the discovery of three and a half thousand burials in what was already suspected to be a plague pit from 1665-6. There are many plague pits in London, and some do date back to the Black Death, and the rough location of many are known from historical primary sources of the time, or from the ground level. This is to say that churches such as St. Mary's at Hill and St. Olaf's in the city, um, being churches, they would have initially been the primary burial ground for the dead. But as the dead numbers increased, there became little or no room. So until then, they were just piled upon, piled upon, piled upon each other. And this has increased the ground level that you can actually witness today. If you are to visit one of these churches, the entrance to the church, you have to go down steps from the surrounding ground level. And it is actually quite eerie to think that the level of the dead has reached so high um, against the original foundations of the church entrance. So the burial pit uncovered at Crossrails was near Charterhouse Square and had been the burial ground of the Old Bedlam Asylum on ground known as New Churchyard. The excavation showed that the skeletons from the period of the plague had been laid very respectfully in coffins and there was no evidence of bodies just being thrown in at this particular site. Considering this place was an existing burial spot at the time of the plague, it could be concluded that these burials had been interred at the beginning of the breakout, when the burials were at a manageable level and time allowed such respectability. Perhaps the bundling onto carts and tipping into a communal pit shows that those remains were buried later in the epidemic. So this was a fabulous opportunity for osteoarchaeologists to use some of the better preserved remains to attempt to locate the presence of Vericina pestis, the bacteria responsible for the plague. Now, t- the teeth are fabulous capsules for DNA and isotope analysis, and one of the world's leading places for testing this is the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Germany. From the 20 individuals tested, five actually yielded positive results for this plague it was an amazing discovery. Not only did it verify that these individuals were indeed play victims, but it gave results that studying merely the skeletal system just couldn't yield. Diseases such as plague, cholera, and typhoid took a huge toll upon past populations, But because they work through the body so quickly, they don't leave markers on the bones, as do diseases such as syphilis, tuberculosis, and rickets. A short distance away from the excavation, a headstone was found on one Mary Godfrey. Her burial is recorded in the register of St. Giles Cripplegate. That's our area. If you recall the first place to record a plague outbreak, she was laid to rest on September the 2nd, 1665, half a meter below the surface. There are the terrors of the time, 1665. That was the terrors of the time, London, 1665. Just a couple of little pointers to end with. Um, The nursery rhyme Ringer Ringer Roses does not actually date back to the plague and is a Victorian nursery rhyme. And the fire of London in 1666 was not responsible for eradicating the plague as so is commonly thought. The fire swept through uh, London between the 2nd and the 6th of September, 1666, and by this time the plague had begun to subside. However, a lot of old medieval London was lost, and it did contribute to laying the foundations for a new London. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope you will tune in for episode two, which will be coming along soon. Show notes, pictures and resources are available on the website, thebonestories.com. And please share your thoughts and comments. So until next time, bye.